0: This episode brought to you by our friends at King Canine, providing pet owners with the highest quality organic hemp products for pets available on the market. Bringing joy to families nationwide, helping them keep their four-legged family members healthy and happy. Get all the information and order your quality pet wellness products today at King kingcaninewellness.com. K-I-N-G-K-A-N-I-N-E wellness.com. Hi, W-R-O-K, Rock 109. You are caller number 109. Who's this? It's uh, Lee. Lee, where are you calling from?
1: Ah, uh, Chicago.
0: All right, Lee. For all the cash piled up in the rock pit, what is the phrase that
1: pays? Um, I listen to Fun 11 WMYQ. Mm. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the Bill Murphy Show. The
0: stories behind the music. And when we say behind the music, we mean way behind the music. As far as this episode is concerned, welcome to 2020, the first show of the new year, season 20, we'll call it, episode one, just to keep things organized. My guest, a sort of a bucket list interview for me. I don't get nervous talking to rock stars all the time, guitar players, singers, my heroes that I've heard on the radio, but this guy makes me nervous to interview him. He's... um I've been fortunate enough in my radio career to work with uh, brilliant minds like this guy and the people that worked under his consultation over the years at great rock stations. And uh, Lee Abrams joins me as we do a little tandem dissection of the radio business, the evolution of it, and maybe a look into the future of it. Lee, thanks so much for taking the time, man. Hey, It's great to be here. So you are in Chicago these days. And um, what is is new with you in the... uh, in the radio world, have you completely have you moved on to bigger and better things, or are you still ingrained in this business that we're in? No, I
1: still follow it uh, really closely, and uh, and I'll have some media things to announce in the next uh, couple months.
0: Oh, you can't uh, unveil a big surprise here on the podcast?
1: <laughs> no, because it's not all finalized, <laughs> but it's in motion.
0: I want to start by saying there's a great recent interview with Lee on the Bob Lefsetz podcast that covers his illustrious career in a very um, biographical manner. I highly recommend it for those of you who need a quick cram of what this guy has accomplished, especially if you're in the business. Um, I know this show will be listened to by many industry folk, and I want to drill deep into some of the details about FM radio and FM rock radio in particular. Um, I believe anyone under the age of 40 listening to this may not be familiar with the term AOR, album-oriented rock. It's uh, the format that Lee Abrams architected in it. I guess you could say, Lee, that it lives on today in what's now known as classic rock.
1: Yeah, primarily. The uh, original AOR uh, concept, uh, you don't really hear too much anymore. It's mostly morphed into... Uh... In the classic
0: rock. Well, I was fortunate enough to get a chance to work, well, directly under you at the Satellite Music Network for a little while in Dallas, but also indirectly for a lot of great rock stations that I worked for, WSHE in particular. I worked for Neil Mirsky and Sonny Fox, Dave Lang, uh, Charlie Kendall, all these guys who, oh, were, right. <laughs> who were operating under the consultation of uh, Burkhard Abrams or Burkhard Douglas Abrams, and a lot of your philosophy uh, trickled down to my program directors, and I learned some just just timeless, incredibly valuable information for me in in various air check sessions with bosses. And I want to pick a few of those apart. There's a few that I still remember to this day that I want to see how well they were they translated when they went down the line. If I was actually interpreting them correctly, but we'll get into that. Let's start with this. I want to I want to go back because I know you're as much of a radio junkie as I am, and, and as a lot of people that are listening to this are, take me back to when you were a little kid and describe sort of a uh, two-hour block of you as a kid listening to the radio growing up, where that was, what it sounded like, who you were listening to, what the stations were, and even in more detail, like some actual content that you actually remember listening to as a little kid. Because I know how it sounded like when I did, and I wanted to hear what, uh, how that experience was for you.
1: And you're just starting to listen to radio and become uh, enamored with it. Uh, WLS in Chicago was the main station. And uh, I was, you know, just blown away by the theater of the mind factor. Uh, you know, that the, the, the jingles just took you to a different place. The production, uh, how the disc jockeys were so t- tied at the hip with the music, the way they sell the music. Uh, the way they were tied together with the audience, everything from taking dedications and requests, and uh, just the whole the whole fun of it all. These stations manufactured fun. It was uh, it was an experience. It was a soundtrack of that era. And uh, then I, you know, I was able to being in Chicago, growing up in Chicago, able to hear stations from around the country. WABC in New York, for example, right, and um, that was also magic, just hearing these distant signals uh, and hearing uh, stations back then sounded like their community. Uh, WABC sounded like New York, uh, WLS sounded like Chicago, and I remember taking a a road trip uh, with my parents on Christmas holiday or something, and we'd go from... um, Chicago, through Indianapolis, Louisville, Nashville, Atlanta, Jacksonville, and end up in Miami, where we're taking our vacation. And every one of those cities had stations that just sounded like their cities, and uh, you know, just had uh, had their own character. And now you take that same trip, and uh, in my opinion, everybody sort of sounds the same. It's been like that for a while.
0: I think that's the thing I miss the most about radio, and and that even stretches into records. Making records and music used to be so geographic. It was like you would hear a style of music that came from Virginia, like Dave Matthews' band. You could go back as recent as like 20, 25 years ago. You know, obviously the Seattle scene, there's the Austin, Texas scene. Music just is not as geographical as it used to be.
1: No, uh, again, you know, the big hits were big hits everywhere, but there was that 10 or 20% that was uh, exclusive to a region, and sometimes it expanded. Here in Chicago, we had a whole garage rock scene in the mid-60s with the, the crying shames and the shadows of night and, and right. uh, yeah. you know, the Ides of March groups like that. And uh, back then, the trade papers used to um, list... Uh, Breaking out of, and they list you know Miami and Dallas and San Diego, and uh, and uh, chart the, the records that were happening there locally, so you could be in anywhere in the country and see what was going on in these different regions. And uh, I, I remember that was very helpful, even in the uh, early AOR days when we had a station in Seattle, and they uh, way before anybody else told us about Heart. This local that was happening, and we yeah. spread it to other stations and took off everywhere. And there were uh, examples of that. You don't see that as much anymore, and I regret that.
0: Yeah, it's just a sad part of the evolution of it all. And when you were a little kid listening to those stations and becoming enamored with it, I'm, I'm imagining you were staying up way later than you should have, listening to late night with a little transistor radio probably, like I was.
1: Absolutely. Under the under the covers.
0: <laughs> were you um, one of them actually fell off a cabinet onto my head and I had to go to the hospital for stitches once because I, I had a little radio accident in bed late, late one night. But um, <laughs> these how were you immediately? Did you see your whole future in front of you? Did you want to be a DJ like the rest of us? Did, did What was the first thing you wanted to do once you heard that new this was something you wanted to get involved with?
1: Yes, I uh, the, the moment I heard it, was just uh, kind of addicted to it and knew that uh, this and the music, which uh, was equally uh, intoxicating to me, uh, is where I wanted to be, uh, music and radio. And As I uh, listened more and found out who program directors were and what their function was, I, I tended to want to uh, be a, a program director more than a disc jockey and sort of... Uh, the architect of the sound, rather than having, rather than being the star. Yeah. Um, but that all happened, uh, you know. Really, the the moment I, I first listened.
0: You went straight there. You went right to the right to the. Well, top. early
1: on, when I first got uh, you know into radio, I subscribed to Cashbox and Billboard uh, with my allowance, and um, <laughs> oh. you know I'd read the articles in those trade papers. And, you know, you'd read about these uh, program directors who were guiding stations. And I thought, wow, that's what I want to do. I want to guide one of these things. And I thought, consulting, <laughs> that's a good angle. And uh, so I was more into the big picture rather than having a show.
0: Now, I was a little bit of a latecomer compared. You know, I, I just got into it in a slightly later era than you did. And so Burkhard Abrams or your consulting firms that you did were really the first I'd ever heard of. Uh, What was around before you guys took over the scene in FM radio, uh, other consulting firms and what kind of things were they doing?
1: Uh, Really? There weren't very many. One, uh, Bill Drake who uh, consulted the whole RKO chain, which was uh, a group of AM stations in big markets San Francisco and, L.A. and New York and uh, Memphis and a bunch of others, and he created a dramatic new sound that uh, just swept the country. Uh, again, in like one book, uh, he'd go on the air and market like L.A. with KHJ, and just uh, the sound was so fresh, so modern uh, compared to what the competitors were doing, which was getting a little tired by the middle 60s, mm-hmm. 65. And um uh, you know, it just uh, swept the country. And he never really had a lot of stations as a consultant, but the ones he did have made a tremendous impact. And, of course, there were imitators all in every, almost every market. Uh, there were other guys. There was um, Bud um uh, and, uh, oh, let's see, uh, Mike Joseph, who I believe just passed away. But... Uh, Bill Drake was really the the main guy.
0: And yours was the first to really skyrocket and take off with it. One of the most yeah one of the most compelling parts of the interview you did with Bob was when you described how that happened, how you your first couple of stations, how quickly it turned into. A whole bunch of stations. Can you give a little brief description about that, about how that happened? Where did you first start? Who was the first station you went to with a a consulting idea and approached them on the consulting angle?
1: That was WQDR in Raleigh, followed uh, closely by a WRNO in New Orleans. And both those stations, uh, particularly Raleigh, just immediately went through the roof. And there was an era where there were a lot of big AM stations, that had their FMs playing dentist office music, you know, in a closet Uh with great signals and really not doing anything. And so it was a great opportunity to go to these uh, big AM stations and say, look, you're not doing anything with your FM, and for relatively little money, we can uh, take advantage of this whole stereo album thing that's exploding. And I said, well, that's interesting. Then when the results started happening in the... uh, the Arbitron, which is a, a radio service at the time, that's when we could literally waltz in any market and say, "Hey, you want want a piece of this with your FM?" And they <laughs> say, "Yeah," and it was just a domino effect, and they'd be successful, and then uh, we'd go to other markets and show our story, and <laughs> uh, they'd want in. And the next thing you know, is we had you know over a hundred uh, FM stations.
0: I, would, I when I was hearing you describe that, I couldn't help but, but like get the anxiety about you know, you got a couple hundred dollars from a couple of different stations, you make your deposits, you get your little small business thing going. And then all of a sudden it's a mad scramble for CPAs and, uh, your big bank accounts and and you got to take care of the, you got to get lawyers and now you got to get a staff. It must've been just like an, an accelerated process for you to keep up with everything.
1: Yeah, it really was. And we hired, uh, a lot of people relatively quickly over a few years, uh, Dwight Douglas and, uh, Lee Michaels, John Sitton, Bob Elliott, and a bunch of others. And we had to set up a real office. When I uh first moved to Atlanta to join Kent Burkhart, I had a guitar, a briefcase, and a suitcase. <laughs> and uh, a year later we had this big office with uh, uh you know office managers and receptionists and uh and uh, accountants and all that sort of thing. So it really took off fast. It got big real fast.
0: Too fast, almost. Am I remembering this correctly? Was this based in Atlanta at the time?
1: Yes, it was. Okay. Um, I was uh, in Chicago and I was nineteen or so. And Kent was, you know, in his forties with uh, three kids, two dogs, and uh, I couldn't ask him to come to Chicago. Right. So. Uh, Heard great things about Atlanta so I just uh, packed up the car and drove down and we started the company.
0: And at that point was it how much of it was I don't know positioning music and rotating music correctly and making sure libraries were, were built the right way and how much of it was on-air delivery by the disc jockeys and personalities. Was there Well, a pers- there were
1: three components. Uh, the most important one was the music. Uh we had a formula And that was, I mean, that was critical that it was followed pretty closely or with, you know, some local uh, localization. But uh, the the situation was there were existing underground stations and they were highly undisciplined. Then you had top 40 stations uh, on the other end of the spectrum. So we positioned ourselves as being commercial as possible without losing our progressive identity by changing the familiarity factor from song title to artist. So instead of every song you knew, as you would on a Top 40, you knew every artist. But within that artist, you could play pretty much their whole library. And we call it the oh-wow factor, when somebody would tune into one of our stations and hear uh, you know, Led Zeppelin and go, well, that's Led Zeppelin, but oh wow, it's not a whole lot of love again. Or when it was Santana, right. it wouldn't be uh, Black Magic Woman again. So we had that tremendous depth, but it was still familiar. So that was really the uh, the anchor to the whole thing. Secondly, uh, special features, uh, image enhancers, things like you know the Beatles A to Z and uh, the Midnight Album Hour.
0: Electric Lunch.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the Two for Tuesdays and all those things that were introduced back then. Uh, those really enhanced. The image of the station and create an appointment listening and and were trademarks that people would talk about and the third thing and all three of these are you know very important was the on air style We didn't want you know what we used to call the breathers these you know guys who would talk like this uh-huh. as if they were like beyond stone, <laughs> and we certainly didn't want the top forty approach hey. we wanted something uh, right in the middle where you know it was very conversational and informational and uh, you put all those three, three things together the music mix the uh, special programming the features the trademarks and the conversational jock approach and uh, that was it and then of course we had the uh, the marketing we had a certain look right. uh, to our uh, all of our outdoor advertising bumper uh,
0: stickers posters that kind of stuff yeah
1: exactly yeah. The stickers and posters right That's great. Uh and we found we had fans, and not just users. And those fans would put uh, put stickers on their car, and they'd uh, you know they'd raise the station flag wherever they could. Mm-hmm. Certainly down there in uh, Florida, when you worked at She, you saw She's Only Rock and Roll stickers everywhere.
0: I heard yeah. stories from hockey players for the Rangers back in the '80s. One of them in particular was telling me a story about a, his brother in Canada was driving around with a She's Only Rock and Roll sticker on his car. That was a an iconic uh, logo.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, that was happening in just about every market in the country. A station, again, would have uh, fans and not just uh, just users, That's, not just numbers. Yeah, they're not and, just
0: listeners. They're, they're, they were fans. That's another key thing that uh, you brought to the game. I loved how you said early on when you were describing this, Uh, the stations that you listened to as a kid as manufacturing fun. And it seems like it's so much, I I don't want to make this like a radio slamming session, this whole interview, but there are, there are some things we need to talk about that have, that has evolved. It was so much more fun and now it's much more of a business.
1: Yeah. It's very, uh, very much so uh, since consolidation and uh, you know, the financial situation of a lot of these groups and stations, and it's uh, unfortunate. I don't think it's too late. I think uh, stations can get back on the uh, creative beam. It's funny for terrestrial or you know fM radio, uh, it's a period of time when it's critical to create magic, to manufacture fun, because the competitors are you know streaming and and all these other new technologies that are delivering music. I mean, that's that's serious competition, so now is not the time to be uh, creatively meek. Now is right. the time to pull out the creative guns and uh, create amazing uh, radio, and it's doable, because it, it doesn't cost anything. It's just a matter of imagination.
0: And I think and, another uh, thing that makes it doable is that the things you're competing with, the streaming services, whatever it is, Tidal, iTunes... Spotify, they're playing the tunes for you. You're getting a great playlist and a lot of uh, excellent continuity in that direction. But if you want to be radio, you can do all of that and take it a step further with bringing the personality into it. So
1: it's a, yeah, we call it the, the magic between the songs, right? Production and personality. And even go overboard. And, uh, and, uh, you know, some formats uh, require, I think a, uh denser production and a deeper, uh, approach to personality than others, but uh, you know, generally, the whole attitude's got to change to where you want to create these amazing radio stations that just uh, explode out of the speakers, and very few people, if any, are doing that today.
0: Yeah, I get, I got the idea, and again, to reference Bob Lefset's interview that you did with him, I I heard a guy when I was listening to you that n- that knows we're on the cusp of radio making its next big evolution and doing something magical and becoming the um, compelling medium that it used to be. But you're not exactly sure, and I don't blame you, you're not exactly sure what that's going to be. You just know that there's got to be some inventors out there that are going to come up with stuff that'll blow us away.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's unfortunate a lot of the great creative minds they used to go to radio are now entering uh, you know the internet and other right. uh, other outlets um, i mean it pays of,
0: it pays for them to do it independently now i mean it's sadly it's not a very uh, attractive uh profession anymore because they know that the ra- the the people that get paid very well are very few and far between
1: right and uh, but i think that people that come up with the uh, new approaches at work can do very well for themselves yeah but you don't see many people uh reaching out creating uh, just amazing magical new programming
0: I know, but hopefully they'll uh they'll come on, you kids, get on it you know we need we need you we yeah. i'm gonna tear i'm gonna kind of uh, uh let's see dissect a couple of uh philosophies I've heard of yours over the years, and again, I want to make sure that I've got an accurate interpretation of these things i'm sure. gonna take you back to an air check session, and I'm not exactly sure if this one is one of the few air check sessions that I had with the, uh, satellite music network gang with you, or whether it was one of my program directors that was working under, uh, your co- consultation. But I heard a quote that came from you that said, according to the research that you've done, whatever your favorite music is between the ages of 16 and 20, it remains your favorite music pretty much for the rest of your life. That stays the dearest to your heart. Am I getting that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh and if you're in the music business or in the radio business, you you don't count. But as far as the the mainstream go, goes, oh, there we go. All right. Uh, before you're 16, you're into whatever's uh, whoever's cute or whatever's cool at that moment. And uh, 16 to 20 is when you really get serious about music. And I mean there. There could be fistfights, and everything you don't like <laughs> automatically sucks. Right. And, uh, you know, Metallica rocks, and Bon Jovi doesn't, and, you know, et cetera. <laughs> and uh, that sound sticks with you. There used to be this myth that uh, somebody who's into rock and roll, and on their 25th birthday, they're now 25 to 49, yeah. according to the ratings, and all of a sudden, they go, you know, where's the Neil Diamond? I'm 25 <laughs> now. <laughs> But it didn't happen, and uh, right, you know, you look at uh, the biggest, uh, many of the biggest concert draws today. They're all these, uh, you know, one-time hippie bands everybody thought would uh, would go away as people aged. They're uh, they're bigger now than ever.
0: Yeah, that's true. Now you've just sort of um, uh, answered some of the question about that with me knowing that the industry people don't count because obviously, I mean, I've people like you and I have more of uh, an ear to what's going on and we're more open to hearing other things. And my musical taste has definitely evolved over the years. So I can see how I'm exempt from that study. But I want to tell you that the moment I heard that, that stayed with me for a while. I, when I was on the air, I remembered that, that this song that I'm playing here was probably a favorite of somebody's that when they were 16 to 20, and I got to be sensitive of that to that. But I remember initially hearing that and overanalyzing it, thinking to myself, so it would have been like maybe 1985 that I heard this, and then I thought to myself, okay, it's 1985, so if that's true, there's a guy who's like 70 that just passed away, and 50 years ago would have been 1935 so are you telling me the music that was out in 31 to 35 is still that guy's favorite music?
1: Yeah, you know, you talk to somebody in 90 and really grill them on what, what their favorite music is, and it'll go back to uh, Big Band and Sinatra and that, and that whole era. Um, and again, uh, you know, they, they might like new things, but it'll definitely be rooted in that era. You know, proof of that is the success a few years ago of a music of your life which was a format that just played all that old stuff, and it was huge. Uh, again, 60, 70-plus. Right. But, uh, you know, it just demonstrated the uh, the power of uh, of music of your youth.
0: Yeah, I just thought you were kind of predicting the future. It's obvious that that, that has proved to be true today, but back then I thought to myself— how does he know this without, <laughs> but it was, it's fascinating stuff. And that's just one of hundreds of things. I also remember, I believe it was Sonny that was uh Sonny Fox. that was when he was program director at she, he was passing along some advice. And as he said it, I sw- I knew to myself, I go, he must've gotten that from Lee Abrams. And it was a quote and I'll describe it to you. We were listening to one of our, one of the guys on the staff's air check and in front of everybody. This is how we used to do it. The program right. director would play the air check of one of the guys in front of the whole staff. It was humiliating. So, And he played, it was Bob Seeger, Hollywood Nights. I'll never forget it. The song has a long fade out. The DJ came in and started talking, and it was very abrupt when he came in and started talking. Sonny stopped the tape, and he said, all right, I want everybody to just close their eyes. Imagine you're in a convertible on a beautiful day in Fort Lauderdale driving down the Strip your favorite song is Bob Seger, Hollywood Nights, and it is cranked. You've got it turned all the way up, and you're driving down the street, and as the song's fading out, all of a sudden this giant voice comes down from the sky into your car and just completely interrupts your your buzz. It's a big, <laughs> giant buzzkill. I'm, I'm imagining that that was something that uh, you passed along to Sonny, and then he passed along to us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the things, uh, one of the... The myths about Top 40 was uh, where the jock became more important than the music, and they would talk up the post and uh, come in toward the end. And uh, where jocks might, uh, DJs might pat each other on the back because of their, their tightness and skill in that, uh, the average listener would shut up and <laughs> play the song.
0: Yeah, I, the the intros of songs were a lot more sacred in classic rock or AOR back in the day but in adult contemporary and top 40, it's almost uh, a little more forgiving to do that, right?
1: Yeah, a little bit, but, uh, cause the listeners maybe aren't as, um, you know, passionately connected with their favorite songs, but, um, you know, it's, it's a factor in all formats.
0: Yeah. At one point when you were consulting, I guess, hundreds of stations at the same time, you basically, I, I'm sure you were aware of the power that you had as far as, helping to break a record or uh, help an artist hit the scene or an already established artist to get a new album off and running and doing well, you always had that kind of power. I really want to see if I can dig into your personal taste and, and ask you if you can look back and remember if there was a time you were ever, you know, personally involved in a programming decision because you were a big fan of a particular band or a song and, and, maybe gave it a little bit of an unnecessary advantage
1: yeah um i remember group i remember i went to england kind of to look at to check out the whole new wave movement that was happening in the uh, late 70s early 80s and uh, heard the police on the radio a lot and they were kind of initially lumped together with the other you know new wave and uh bands that were and punk bands that were coming out at the time Uh, the New English Wave, and uh, I noticed, man, these guys are different. They're just a great band. And so came back to America, and same thing with you, too. Came back to America and said, you know, we we got to take this, uh, some of these bands real seriously, because what was happening was, there were a lot of really bad uh, New Wave bands. Oh, um, Oh, yeah. That were just 180 degrees from what American listeners wanted. But in that mix, there were a few really amazing bands and the police was one of them. So I, uh, kind of went out on a limb and some people thought I was kind of nuts, but, uh, you know, it's like, this is not your typical, this is not, you know, the sniveling shits, uh, some punk band. This is a, this is different. These guys are melodic and, uh, really good musicians. And, uh, so I I would say that, um, band, uh, the U2, and a few others from that era were uh, were definite sort of personal picks. And uh, throughout the uh, years before that, there were uh, artists that I heard uh, that were usually doing well in one or two of our markets that you know would spread to other markets, yeah. like that hard example. Right. Even real early on, Bob Seger, who uh, was really a Detroit-Midwest phenomenon, and we were I think pretty aggressive about saying no. This guy's the real deal. So I, you know, I had to temper the um, the emotional input because I always looked at uh, the keeping uh, balancing science with emotion, where everything starts emotionally, and then you use science to see if you're full of it or not. Yeah. Um, but I tried to to keep it very balanced, unless there was really strong evidence that required uh, telling people about.
0: You know, obviously, you had to separate your personal interests because Lee Abrams' favorite songs weren't necessarily a good playlist for the radio. Right?
1: No, not even close. Uh, <laughs> I mean, fortunately, we're, we're, some of the bands I really love uh, were legitimately successful and we played <laughs> sure and we they were. Love that. But you... there was some pretty obscure stuff in there, too, that, you know, obviously just couldn't play.
0: So do you ever listen to like the classic rock station now and then and hear a song play or maybe one of the sta- the songs uh, stations on uh, Sirius XM and go, ah, that song became timeless and it wouldn't have been on the radio if it wasn't for me?
1: Uh, well, yeah, arrogantly speaking. No, I, I mean, that that you're time. entitled yeah. to do that, Lee. You Yeah, there were, all, uh, I mean, a great deal of songs that... Uh, said, hey, we played that first, or, you know, <laughs> our, the muscle of our group of stations that uh, that broke them wide open. You know, I hear that all the time.
0: Can you think of anybody, any artist out there that may not have made it into the scene if it wasn't for your recommendations?
1: Uh me uh, a good question.
0: Right. I, I knew that was one that was going to make you think.
1: Yeah, that makes me think. I mean, there are a lot of artists that, uh, you know, the Pink Floyds and the Led Zeppelin, they would have made it even without radio airplay.
0: Right, right.
1: Um, <laughs> but not, I'd have to give that some thought. Maybe Super Tramp. Oh, wow. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, that was a good example.
0: Probably. And that was another one that you discovered when you were in England?
1: No, uh, that was one. Uh, I was always into progressive rock and uh, Super Tramp. We're kind of in that mode. And I just really liked them. And I remember turning a few PDs on uh, to them, early stuff. And, um, you know, just seeing what they thought. And they said, hey, this is cool. All right, let's give it a try.
0: Yeah, you know what's funny about Supertramp? This is a little side story here. I remember I used to back, we played Goodbye Stranger a million times. And I remember coming out of it and talking. When I would have the headphones on for the last 30 seconds of that song, I would hear that guitar solo in the vamp. I could I was saying it on the air too. I was like, "Hey, A&M Records same uh, era. That solo sounds eerily similar to Peter Frampton. I have a feeling they had Peter Frampton come on and play on that record." I used to say it on the air. And it well, was possible they were on the same label. There was no nothing no notification in the credits or anything about that. It was just my own musical whim. And it went on and on and on. I forgot about it. Years and years later, I got a, finally had a chance to meet uh, Peter Frampton. And I said, "Hey, Peter, you know, goodbye is it Are you on that record?" And he goes, "No, you know, that's very funny, though. There was a period of time in England where people were walking around calling Super Tramp Super Framp." because of the similarity, but it wasn't yeah. but it was him. It was just somebody who liked to play just like Peter Frampton. So.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. I heard that story.
0: Now, when you l- l- listen back, next time you hear that song, you're going to hear how much it sounds like Peter. Yeah, I'll check that out. That period of time where you were doing this album-oriented rock made so much more sense than it does now because the albums were so full of great songs from beginning to end, It's not something you see as much these days. You were blessed. No, that
1: was a magical era, you know, 64 to 80, whatever. 80, right. Where there was just, I mean, uh, might be 100 years before it happens again, but it'll be historically noted as an amazing era for music. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, the depth on these albums was incredible. You could, uh, you know, there was a reason to play pretty much the whole album because, so many tracks were great right? whether it's Fleetwood Mac or Pink Floyd or Genesis or whatever uh one after another and it was just an amazing era and a perfect time to have the facilities to um uh, to play that depth
0: and like you said when you would expand and play you know let the audience hear another Santana song that was that wasn't Oye Como Va it wasn't just another Santana song it was another great Santana song Oh, so that,
1: exactly that's why uh you know, the, the idea of depth could easily be playing stiffs instead of the hits, but they were great songs, and uh, obviously the audiences agreed, because it was a, it was the soundtrack.
0: What happened in the following years after that, besides music getting watered down a little bit, um, did you think radio went through, a, a you know, post post Burkhard Abrams, and rock radio in particular, did, did things become over-consulted? It, Cause I, if you, if you get into the mind of like a stereotypical radio cynic, somebody that talks about radio in a negative way, I see them all the time in and out of the business, even listeners that talk about how, ah, oh, radio is just over consulted to the point where they just play the same 50 songs over and over again. Is there something to that? Did some people do some overthinking?
1: Uh, a lot of it. I think it was over consulted, but, uh, the real culprit is over researched. Um, Again, it used to be science and emotion where things would start emotionally and then after the fact you'd research you know, your creativity, see if it was working or not. And then it became just uh, slaves to, to data. And I question if the research in radio was even valid in the first place. And one reason I say that is when I was at XM, first starting there, um, we had three or four different research companies do uh, projects for us. And they were all completely different, the results. Wow. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, 180 degrees from each other. So I think uh, the research itself is flawed, and I think there became an addiction to it. And you combine that with uh, consolidation, which happened later, and a generation of uh, ownership that was uh, more, you know, in in all due respect, they were more into the... uh, the banking aspect of it, the trading of radio stations and they were in creating magic. Sure. Um, back in the early days, I mean, you had operators that really were passionate. Yeah. I mean, guys like Frank Wood at W E B. N they were like, uh, they, they could have been the program director and done amazingly well. And those guys got kind of, uh, they retired or just washed out of the business over years. So combination of consolidation research and, uh, and the lack of uh, real imagination-driven ownership, I think, uh, sort of hurt.
0: Because when I always have to defend myself with cynics about the shortened playlists and all that stuff, I say, "Well, you know, people's attention spans have gotten so much shorter over the years, and everybody's so afraid of hearing something that's not familiar. They just want to hear something familiar, even if it's even if it's not their favorite song. It's just comfortable for them because it's it's." Familiar, so we are like that to some degree, I I believe. But did sort of uh, the programming do that to them?
1: Yeah, uh, I think again familiarity is uh, is important, uh, and in some formats, it's absolutely critical. What I notice is when a station goes on the went on the air in the old, day, in old days, in the 70s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, it was a major mission. I mean, you had all-night sessions in hotel rooms plotting out the strategy, and uh, you just had every little element worked out. You know, you looked at uh, the music and the production and the marketing and the features. You know, how were you going to be in sync and current with the streets? and, uh, you know, audience respect and passion and, yeah. and who are the personalities. Nowadays, I sense a stational launch uh, with little preparation. They'll have a, usually hire a morning show, test the music library, maybe throw up a few billboards and call it a day. Yeah. So I think um, it's way oversimplified these days. And, you know, there's an excuse, well, we don't have the uh, money for a staff to do all that, but I totally disagree, because it was never, uh, some of the stations we worked with were, were I mean, skeleton staff. it's just, uh, there was a game plan, a mission plan, and now you don't see that as much anymore, it's like, uh, we're going to plug in a format, you know, Bob, or whatever it's called, and work so-and-so, and uh, test our library, get the morning show, and let it go, and, uh, you know, expect magical results, uh, I think it's just a lot more complicated than that. And uh, it's worth the uh, the effort to really get in there and uh, and work at creating something uh, something special. I call it completeness, where uh, everything from the way the receptionist answers the phone to what you're doing at 2 o'clock in the morning is just really thought out and as good as it can be. Yeah. Within your budget.
0: It's a shame to see that not happening as much as it should, especially in... In big markets like like here in Miami and, and Chicago, where you are too, it's with just the big companies just phoning it in. We now we've determined that yes, maybe the you know shortening of playlists sort of gave the listeners a shortener attention span and made them more comfortable with familiarity. And then we became sort of confined. Can we fix that? And is can we get the diversity back? Can we put variety back into the mixes and make everybody's uh, scope a little bit wider?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I'm not totally convinced about the uh, short attention span, especially when you see in other media people binging and uh, Ah. really getting into stuff very deeply.
0: That's a good point.
1: Yeah, and I think the short attention span is kind of an excuse among uh, programming people who don't have long time spent listening. Uh, and it's an easy excuse, um, but I think it's self-inflicted. And did, did... But no, I think uh, we can definitely get back to that. It, uh, again, takes really a major rethink. It's not as simple as, hey, let's uh, open up the playlist and let the jocks talk more, because that could backfire real easy. Again, sure. it's that master plan where you really think everything out, go through the exercise, uh, you reclaim the artist, you create anticipation of always something coming up next, There's an attitude to the station, Uh, you know, guerrilla tactics where necessary. Uh, There's a pride you can sense on the air, a sense of uh, mission in the hallways, and, uh, you know, a a commitment to quality and and brilliance. And, again, those actors, regardless of what... uh, Broadcasters will say are generally missing. Yeah. Not everywhere, but generally.
0: Did you get to see the results of expanded uh, playlists and um, diversity and how it worked with the various channels you had at uh, XM?
1: Oh, absolutely. That's uh, what really convinced me of a lot of stuff. Uh, that, you know, had these theories that were untested, but uh, we were able to test them out at uh, XM with tremendous results. Examples being uh, the 60s station which really went, uh, relative to an oldie station, pretty deep. Nothing really obscure, but it was just kind of deep and fulfilling. And, uh, you know, we brought back the old PAMS jingles, and we had high personality with guys like Flash Phelps. Yep. And uh, heavy, dense production. And it was 180 degrees from a typical oldie station. Man, did it work. And uh, same thing with a lot of channels. Uh, Deep Tracks was one that... Uh,
0: oh, that was my favorite. Well, The Vault he, was my favorite, though.
1: Ah, uh, The Vault? Yeah. Yeah, actually, that was uh, After Me. That was, that's more of a serious oh, channel. Oh, that was. That oh. kind of channel, uh, which, you know, traditionalists would say, ah, will never work. Either you know, I play the, the hits. Tremendously successful.
0: Was it really? Because I assumed it was just a throw-in... And it was just there because there couldn't be many more people appreciating it like I was.
1: No, it did great, and particularly uh, 45 to 65 range, really very successful. You know, our, our thought there is, you know, if we had 100 channels, if every channel has a one share, we're doing fine. <laughs> ah, there you go. That's true. <laughs> uh, so. There are some channels that were geared, you know, to have, you know, the blues channel. This is never going to have a lot of listeners, but important to have in the mix and. Um, find that most people listen to about five channels, and it'll usually be a hit channel or two, and then uh, some of the more eclectic stuff.
0: Yeah, I think the only thing that really turned me off to um, Sirius and XM for that matter, I was subscribed to, I think I was subscribed once Sirius came on for a few years. It's the it's the uh, sound quality audiophile geek nerd in me. I I just um. No, I I know what you mean. I couldn't deal with the subpar sound quality, but I think that's just the new norm now.
1: Yeah, that's unfortunate. When we had uh, 100 channels, the sound quality was great, and now I don't even know how many they have. But every time you add a channel, you know the, the quality diminishes. Oh. I didn't realize.
0: So it's an overall bandwidth that has to be considered, I guess.
1: Right. Only so much bandwidth or licensed. I think they may be overexpanded to where there's so many channels and uh, downside is uh, is the, the sound quality stuff.
0: Well, I know that there's a lot of engineers out there that can relate to what I'm saying because they... They go to their all this trouble to record at 96K and high definition, and then ultimately the end user is uh, listening to it at like a 128K MP3 quality. You know, no, just... I
1: know what you mean. It's uh, I, I feel the same way. And uh, it was a trade off because as we expanded in XM, you just knew that uh, we had to do a lot of juggling, keeping certain channels uh, at a high rate at the expense of other channels. But sure. uh, that is, I, I agree with the. Uh, a complaint that uh, people have.
0: What's your overall take on media or or broadcast media in general, the evolution? I want to I want to ask you an odd question. Did you see that uh, TV show, the loudest voice that was the story about Roger Ailes?
1: No, you know, I didn't. I want to, and uh, I will at some point, but I did not see that.
0: Okay. Well, there was a phone call in one of the episodes there that kind of made me uh made me shudder to see it happen apparently and you don't know if this actually happened the way it happened in the show Roger Ailes had a conversation with Carl Rove in 2003 when he was at Fox and Carl was pretty much telling Roger what the dialogue was and how he was to present this uh going into Iraq and kind of turned it into a government telling the uh, press how to cover them and it scared me and made me think that that's what we've turned into because of that uh, that occurrence. What's what's your take on how broadcast media has evolved into something that is, um, I don't know, what it is today?
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, creatively de-evolved. Uh, it's, it's kind of gotten very vanilla. And uh, and at a time when uh, the world needs stimulation and they're getting movies in some other areas, Broadcasting is just uh, dull, and uh, you don't see a lot of innovation. I always uh, told our guys, you know, think like a tech company where, you know, innovation isn't optional. It's In order to stay alive, you got to be completely, you know, looking over the horizon and seeing what's next. Yeah. And you just don't see that in radio or television. Um, everybody seems content with being very average and uh, getting by. Where again, uh, you know, you look at an Apple or a Google, and they're just, you know, racing toward the new next thing, next big thing, and you just don't see that attitude in uh, in radio and television. And a lot of people think I'm nuts or, or they're bitter about the state of things, but it's not that. It's a uh, it's a disappointment in that, uh, you know, uh, we used to our country used to be the uh, the pinnacle of innovation in media. And it's just lost that.
0: What about news? Because news used to be... Well, news
1: is uh, probably the number one culprit. Right. I mean, television news particularly, I mean, you still see the... Uh, I mean, it's not news. Well, yeah, I mean, journalistically, it's uh, it's, it's more like a circus. But right. even the look of it... Uh, you know, you still see all these cliches. The uh, fake city skyline behind the two right. anchors, usually an older guy and a giggling female sidekick. Yep. And uh, you see other sets are, look like NORAD control rooms. <laughs> and uh, everything is, uh, if there's weather, it's always uh, storm tracker weather or one of two or three different slogans. Right. And speaking of slogans, I mean, you know, we're in it for you. We believe in you. You know, come on. Yeah. <laughs> America has pretty good BS radar to believe that stuff.
0: I'm hoping that we are good readers of BS, because at some point all of this has got to give. we got the public's oh, got to say. Oh, I'm kidding, no. uh,
1: You know, I think there's an audience I call the new mainstream, which is, uh, again, not elite, but pretty uh, culturally intelligent. And, uh, you know, they're not embracing... Uh, media like they used to, and uh, again, it's self demained, in my opinion.
0: I just, it's, I'm, I'm just a little disappointed that the whole mentality has been, there's no money in reporting the news factually, because it's boring to people. You have to get opinionated, and you have to raise a little, uh, you know, controversy to get people to pay attention, and that's...
1: It's... Well, that's what everybody thinks, but there are different approaches that just aren't being, uh, being utilized or maximized. So I, I have faith in the potential but uh, it's going to take some, some very new thinking to, uh, to uh, bust out of the current state of things. I was
0: hoping to come out of this discussion with some optimism about the business, and I do. I, at least there's optimism for the potential for things to get better.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm personally very optimistic about things. Uh, and again, the potential is there. It's, uh, it's not a financial thing. It's not a, um, a cultural thing. Everything's in position. It just takes imagination and new thinking, and uh, the people that have the balls to do that and uh, do it, as I mentioned earlier, with uh, a mission plan uh, and really take it seriously are the ones that are going to bust through and uh, take it to the next level.
0: So I guess the the idea to any young people in broadcasting listening to this right now is, is get that brilliant idea that you have in the back of your head and get it to the front of your head.
1: Yeah, and uh, go out and sell it, pitch it, uh, and not expecting it to be a success overnight. It'll take time, but uh, if it's a good one and you're really committed and passionate about it, and have it really thought out, uh, you never know where it can go.
0: Lee Abrams, what a treat to have you here. Do you think um, you can't give any more hints as to what it is your next big venture is going to be that everybody's going to pay attention to?
1: (laughs) No, I'm actually working on a couple things and. uh, uh, it'll break soon I'll be sure to let you know as soon as it
0: does I will contact you again and we'll do a follow-up How's that?
1: That sounds great